just to refresh our memories. Last week's passage was about Paul and Barnabas. Um, you may notice I, I, I use Saul and Paul interchangeably because a lot of times in, in the early chapters of Acts, it still refers to him as Saul, um, but we know him as the Apostle Paul. So if I, if I do flip that, I apologize, but I figure we can all kind of hang together on that. Um, we also talked about the church at Antioch that Paul and Barnabas were encouraging. But in chapter 12, we go back to the church in Jerusalem for a while. Um, during the first few years of Paul's ministry, he spent a lot of time away from Jerusalem, but Peter and James and John were still there in Judea. They were keeping up with the church there. Um, you know, Once the persecution had died down and people started to kind of come back in. Uh, and all three of those men, James and, and Peter and John, were all highly regarded just as they had been during Jesus' ministry. If you recall, they were the kind of the inner circle of the circle of disciples. Um, and there was a point the, the Apostle Paul in Galatians actually referred to them as the pillars of the church, which I, I think that's a pretty cool title, honestly. But we don't know a whole lot about John's brother James from the book of Acts uh, because he actually gets taken off the field pretty early in the game today, in fact, um, in Acts 12. And, and this, is a, this is a lengthy passage today, um, but it has a couple of cool twists. So instead of reading it all at once like we sometimes do, we're just going to take it a chunk at a time. Uh, and you may notice from your bulletin insert also that the message is organized differently uh, from how we would normally do it. Instead of like the neat, you know, the organized points, subpoints, points, subpoints, etc. The, the format is what my father would, would often call a Roman candle sermon. Anybody ever fired off a Roman candle? Right? You, you, anybody ever been shot with a Roman candle? Yeah. <laughs> I went, you know, one time uh, I was at the beach with a bunch of friends. Um, in, in high school, we went over spring break. By the way, parents, never let your child go with a group of friends to the beach or anywhere uh, over spring break unless you're with them. Okay, I'm just, I'm just, I don't know how I bamboozled my parents into allowing that to happen still. But anyway, we were staying in these two houses, and somewhere during the week, we started this rivalry between these two beach houses um, we did a, a, a cop-style raid on their, you know, house with a video camera and stuff. So they came back and, and they, they put a, a paper plate with a pig face drawn on it on a broom and we're sticking it up in the window. And, and it, it turned into Lord of the Flies. It was really weird. Um, but at one point, my friend Dwayne, um, and I totally deserved it, I'm not going to lie, uh, he shot me in the chest from just a few feet away with a Roman candle. And um, it hurt. <laughs> the, uh, but anyway, you know how Roman candles go, okay? You know, you light it up, you hold it up, it, boom, boom, boom. You know, it shoots these fireballs out, and basically, that's how the sermon is going to be, okay? It's going to be just one point after another, but hopefully, you will find them all to hang together in some way, okay? Because I, I really think that they will, it'll make the application easy. So before we jump into that, let's bow. Father God, um, as always, make us good soil that your word might take root and bear fruit. And I pray, Father, for those who are at home watching, whether now or later, um, I ask the same thing for them, Lord. And, and I, I do pray, uh, as Dave mentioned earlier, that you might draw them back to this fellowship. Uh, Lord, I know that some folks are sick, but for those who are, who are not, uh, Lord, um, who maybe are uh, afraid of getting sick or whatever the case may be, Father, I know some folks, you know, are out of town and things like that. But God, for those who are, are able to be here, I pray that they will feel your Holy Spirit nudge. And we ask this in Jesus' name.
All right, so Acts chapter uh, 12, verse 1. About that time, which was during the ministry of Paul and Barnabas in Antioch, Herod the king laid violent hands on some who belonged to the church. Now, th this was not the same Herod that committed mass infanticide trying to get Jesus. Okay, this was actually one of his sons. He had several wives, and this is one of his sons. Um, he killed James, the brother of John, with the sword. And when he saw that it pleased the Jews, he proceeded to arrest Peter also. Okay, so what Luke kind of seems to just gloss over is the fact that James, one of the pillars of the church, was murdered by the king. You know, he, he received capital punishment for what we can assume is probably a charge of blasphemy, uh, like in the case with the martyr Stephen. You know, except this time it wasn't an angry mob that was led by religious leaders. It was a secular monarch of Israel who killed James according to his own whims. But notice this, in both cases, okay, bear in mind, it was the powers that be that sanctioned the persecution. And that's important. It's not usually organic. It's not usually a grassroots thing when persecution happens. It comes from the top down. Anyway, it's, it's such a quick mention, the way that Luke, uh, he writes about the murder of James. It seems almost like it's an afterthought for him. And it's, to me, it's kind of a big deal. You know, this is only the second person in church history whose name we're given who is killed for his faithfulness to Christ. And it's a, it's a pretty solid reminder that we should expect to be persecuted for Christ in some way in this life. We should expect it. And I know this is a, a very common topic. It may sound repetitive. You know, because I, I speak about this consistently, but I really feel, guys, that we are so far removed from persecution in the United States, at least in the biblical sense. You know, we need to be reminded frequently what it looks like so that we're not shocked when it comes. And I think it's coming. We're on a slippery slope. And you know what? We're not even on the slope anymore. We're pretty much in free fall as a society. And I do think this is coming. There's also, it's also really cool how we see the Lord working in new ways now, in different ways. He's been working through technology in some amazing ways. He's been working through even the pandemic in some pretty great ways. Uh, I do sense there's been uh, something of a winnowing in the church. Many of you may have heard the term deconstruction. It seems that a lot of young people, especially, are uh, deconstructing their faith, where they say, I grew up in the church, but now I'm coming out of it, and here's why. Um, that's not a, a very, it's not a new phenomenon, but it's certainly greatly, um, vastly grown in the last several years. Beautiful. Yeah. <laughs> when, every time you hear a bell ring, no. Um, I'm sorry. It, it really, it's a serious thing. We see it happening all over the place. Um, thankfully, there are also some folks who are going through reconstruction, um, who God is, 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 breaking their, their old habits and drawing them to him. One of the things that I, I think, uh, I've mentioned this fairly recently, but I think it, it, it bears repeating, is that some people grow up getting essentially a vaccination for Christianity. They are injected with a, a dead form of Christianity or a severely weakened form of Christianity, whether it's a prosperity gospel or, uh, or, you know, or a works-based gospel, or whether it's something, it's, it's not the real gospel. It's, it's a dead faith, and it's injected into them, and it teaches them to fight off the real thing. 
And when people are inoculated against true Christianity, it's very difficult for them to be able to receive it. And that's part of the reason that we are so committed to this truth of the gospel as Christians. We must be so committed to this truth because nothing else, listen, nothing else saves. There is no other name under heaven by which man can be saved. Only Jesus Christ. He is the way and the truth and the life. Only by his death. Only by his resurrection are we saved. And it is by grace through faith. And we must be committed to this truth. We must be. And the world's not going to like it. The powers that be don't like any threat to the powers that be. James knew that it was going to happen at some point. He, he knew because Jesus told him so, right? You know, uh, I forget which one of you gentlemen mentioned it earlier, but uh, about the apostles all being martyrs. Um, and even John, he, he didn't, he wasn't uh, martyred in, in that he wasn't killed. But they, did you know that according to tradition, they tried to boil him alive in oil? And he kept preaching the whole time? And they couldn't get the oil hot enough? So they gave up and they shipped him off to the Isle of Patmos? People have gone through incredible things for the sake of Jesus. In John 15, Jesus told his disciples, Remember the word that I said to you, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted you or me, they will also persecute you. So guess what? <laughs> if Jesus is your Lord, right, then you're his servant. And if you're a servant of Jesus Christ, then you should expect some persecution. This, this, this is one of the common themes in the New Testament. It's John, it, it, it's, 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 it's John and James and Peter, and all. but it's, it's also for everybody else. It's not just for the, the 12 apostles. Paul told Timothy, he says, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. Now again, that, that may look a little differently in our context, you know. None of us are likely to be crucified like Jesus was. Nor are we likely to, to be martyred as many of the first century Christians were, which incidentally is where Roman candle gets its name. I actually found this out after writing the beginning of this sermon. I discovered that Roman candle uh, was, it, it got its name from a horrifying death by torture that the Emperor Nero used to subject Christians to, and I'm not going to go into detail. There are children in this room but, but believe me, we are so far removed from what the first century Christians had to endure. And maybe we've gotten soft. You know, for most people, I'm, I'm sure that it probably wouldn't cost us our lives to preach the gospel here in the West. In fact, I'm not sure it would cost us anything. To profess Christ yet. But we should expect persecution if we're striving to follow Jesus because I truly believe that's beginning to change and I think it's a good thing for us. I think it's a good thing for us. We should also expect the world to be okay with this. 
We should expect the world to be okay with Christians being persecuted. I want you to notice that Herod had James killed, and then it says when, it's, when it, it pleased the Jewish leaders, right, and he saw how much it pleased them, then he grabbed Peter. And the fact is, until Jesus comes back, there will always be people in this world who are pleased when Christians are mistreated. And if you have a strong enough stomach to, to follow the news cycle, you may have noticed there's a few things that the media likes to harp on. Um, but almost no one talks about the thousands of Christians that are martyred for their faith every year. Nor do they talk about the thousands of church buildings that are attacked or burned, destroyed, bombed. And, and yes, it is in the thousands. Go to Open Doors USA and look, they have statistics there. No media really seems to be talking about the thousands of Christians that are unjustly detained without trial, often against the law in their countries. And it's happening across the world. And we know about it, but it's not something the world seems to really be all that concerned about. Now listen, I'm not necessarily talking about individuals. In my experience, as limited as it is, most people are generally decent people, whether they're believers or not. Okay? Now, I'm not saying they're good people. I'm not saying they're righteous people. I'm just saying they're decent people. Okay? We all have the image of God. And so typically, we are capable, whether we're believers or not, we're fully capable of loving other people and caring about them and wanting to meet their needs. Okay? Most folks care about other people, at least the people that they know. And sometimes they care about people in the abstract, too. But as a whole unit, okay, the world just isn't up in arms about the mistreatment of Christians. It's just not that big of a deal to them. And, and I, I think, you know, when, when Christians are targeted because of their faith in Jesus and, and the world doesn't care, I think it, it's, it's the, the spirit of the age. You know, it's, it's that, that zeitgeist. They just don't care about Christians. There's no love for Christians. I mean, Jesus said the world will hate you. You know, he, he, he warned the disciples about persecution was going to come, and then, and then he, he basically explained it as he says, if you are of the world, well, the world would love you as its own, right? But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. See, that, that's pretty much it. You know, the world is very closed off to those who, who don't fall in step with their collective moral compass. Have you noticed? Those whose loyalty is pledged to the king of another world will never be viewed the same way by this one, will never be loved by the world as its own. And I'm going to add this. If the world does love you as its own, you're doing something wrong. Let's keep reading. This was during the days of unleavened bread, which was the Passover time. Uh, and, and when he had seized him, this is when Herod had seized Peter, he put him in prison, delivering him over to four squads of soldiers. That was at least 16, bare minimum, 16 soldiers to guard him, intending after the Passover to bring him out to the people. I mean, presumably for execution, right, like he did with James. So Peter was kept in prison, but earnest prayer for him was made to God by the church. Now, at the, at the risk of sounding kind of goofy, notice how specific that last sentence is. It doesn't just say, and the church prayed for Peter. And we're going to get into that shortly. Um, but this passage, this is a reminder for us, that all of us believers, that we need to pray for those who are suffering for Christ. 
You know, if you, if you look at our prayer list, you'll see every week as that prayer list comes out, it says pray for persecuted Christians. Pray for our brothers and sisters. Whether they're languishing in prison, whether they're, they're beating, uh, beaten up or they're killed or they're losing their property or, or having their reputation ruined, we should list them, uh, on, you know, we should lift them up to God. We should have our list of them and lift them up to God. I think we would hope that they would do that for us. In fact, I, I heard a while back that a pastor was asking uh, a pastor from a persecuted church, uh, what do you need from us? And they didn't say, he didn't say pray that the persecution ends. He says, just pray for us. Pray for us to be faithful. That's what they want. They want us to pray. I hope one day, if and or when, persecution comes to us, that they pray for us as well. The Bible makes it very clear in 1 Corinthians 12, it says the body of Christ is one body, right? It's all one body. When one part of the body rejoices, then the other parts rejoice, Paul writes. Likewise, when one part of the body suffers, the rest of the body suffers too. You ever been walking through your house when it's dark and stepped on a Lego? Anybody? You ever? Okay. What did you do? <laughs> Scream. <laughs> what did your foot go? Ah! But the rest of you just ignored it and kept on walking, right? No, that's not how that works, right? Your whole body stopped and reacted. Now, if it was one of the flat ones or the round ones, and it was on carpet, then you know maybe. You know, you, you just sat down for a second, rubbed your foot till it stopped hurting. But, but if it was one of those triangular pieces on tile or on a hardwood floor, then maybe you are in the fetal position for a while, right? If you didn't go to the ER. I mean, this, it, it's okay. There, there's no shame, guys. There's no shame, all right? The point is the whole body experiences what one part experiences, and that's the kind of empathy that we ought to have for our brothers and sisters who are suffering for Christ. The whole body should feel that suffering. And when they rejoice, the whole body should rejoice. I heard just a couple of days ago, this is, I'm sorry, I've been doing a lot of stuff that's not in the notes today or in the, in the manuscript today, but, but I'm going to tell you about this because it's so amazing. I was listening to, uh, this is for you, Tom. I was listening to, uh, to the Jim Dennison um, has this wonderful podcast, and he was talking about how in Islamic countries, there are so many people, I know I've mentioned this before, but I didn't realize that it was in the thousands, there are so many people that are seeing a vision of a man in a white robe who comes to them in a dream and tells, him, tells them that he is the way and the truth and the life. They said that there is a billboard that's been put up that says, have you seen the man in the white robe? In your dreams, here's a phone number. And Islamic people are being converted in the millions. These are not Christian-friendly places. Those guys are not soft. They're not soft. They're not. All right. The author of Hebrews wrote, remember those who are in prison as though in prison with them and those who are mistreated since you are also in the body. 
I think one of the best ways to remember people who are suffering is to intercede on their behalf with the Father, to pray for them. As Luke says, the church prayed to God for Peter. You know, they didn't just think about Peter. You know, they didn't send good vibes. <laughs> that drives me crazy. <laughs> good vibes. They specifically prayed. They asked God for help. I mean, that, that's kind of a duh, you know, in one respect, because, because how else do you pray than talking to God? But it's also important to note, God is the only one who is capable of having ultimate control in any given situation. He's the one we need to be talking to. And next, note how they prayed. It says, earnest prayer was made by the church. What is earnest prayer? Does it save Christmas? <laughs> if any of you guys under 40, don't, anyway, whatever. <laughs> uh, I'm sorry, you probably don't get that reference. But the word earnest uh, typically means sincere. It means intense. It means fervent. And many of you know Pastor Allen, the former pastor here. He, he said something one time that really stuck with me. I don't remember if this was in a personal conversation with him or if he said it in a sermon, but I remember what he said. He said, God doesn't expect Christians to get on Facebook and get as many people to pray as possible. Not that there's anything wrong with that, okay? But it's not supposed to be a substitute for what God actually desires for us. If there's a serious need, what God wants is for his people to pray fervently. He wants us to care that much. To sacrifice our time and our energy. To wrestle with him. Honest, earnest prayer. Church, we should pray earnestly rather than perfunctorily, you know? We, we shouldn't just pray as a routine without giving it any thought and then, and then never addressing things as they come up. In fact, I, I think God wants us to be in regular communion with him throughout the day. He wants us to be communicating with him regularly, just like you should be with your spouse, just like you ought to be with your children. We should be in communication with God. And I will be the first to admit that I'm not nearly as faithful with that as I would love to be. There are so many distractions but friends, let's think about what's going on in the world and what's at stake. We're surrounded by people who are suffering now, and that, that's, that's true. We all know that. We all know that we're surrounded by people who are suffering. And even more people will be suffering for eternity apart from the mercy of God because they haven't heard or received the gospel. We have a privilege and a duty, friends, to speak the truth. Do we believe that the Lord hears our prayers and responds? You know, when, when Jesus said, pray for, to the Lord of the harvest, that he'll send more workers. Do we believe that? Do we believe the fields are white? Some of us are like, I have no idea what that means. It, it means it's ready to harvest. Do we believe this? I don't feel like we always act like it. And I, I'm, I'm speaking to myself here too. You know, Jesus teaches us. That, you know, remember when we were studying Luke's gospel, and there's that place where Jesus 
It, it says it was, it was the parable of the unjust judge, which is really hard to wrap our brains around. You can listen to that one. It's from two or three years ago. I preached on that if you want to go back and find it. But, but he told his disciples this parable expressly so that they would, quote, pray and not lose heart, end quote. He told them the parable so that they would pray and not lose heart. And at the end of this parable, Jesus asks them this rhetorical question. And will not God give justice to his elect who cry to him day and night? Will he delay long over them? I tell you, he will give justice to them speedily. If Jesus said it, can we believe it? Okay. Let's be more willing to cry out to him day and night, church. All right, let's keep reading. Now, when Herod was about to bring him out on that very night, Peter was sleeping between two soldiers bound with two chains. So just picture this. He's sleeping, stuck between two, two people, and he's chained to both of them. And there's probably, you know, more guys in the room that are sleeping and guys at the door and they're taking shifts, you know. But he's surrounded by all these, all these soldiers. And then it says, um, <coughs> excuse me, and centuries before the door were guarding the prison. Okay. So the miraculous part's coming up here, but, but there's something pretty neat in this paragraph, to me, anyway. Um, what's Peter doing? He's sleeping. He's, he's chained to two soldiers, being guarded by over a dozen more in a prison cell, expecting to die the next day, like one of his friends recently did, and he's sleeping. Why do you think Peter was able to sleep? <laughs> I suppose there's that, you know. I mean, he could have been exhausted, but, but I mean, this is a deep sleep, too. We're going to see it in the next couple of verses. I think it's because he was at peace. He wasn't wallowing in anxiety at the moment. Why? Because he trusted the Lord for whatever was going to come the next day. And church, just like Peter, we are able to have the peace that accompanies trust in God. We're able to have that peace, despite our circumstances. And I know, I know many of us have had moments where, where we've experienced this kind of a situation. You know, we're on the verge of, of panic, and we feel like we ought to be flipping out. But right in the midst of it, we feel the Lord's hand on us, you know, and it gives us calm. We feel His, His peace. I think feeling the peace of God is both a cause and a result of trusting in the Lord. It's a cyclical thing, you know. And, and when, when Jesus was about to leave his disciples and go to the cross, he made this, this short but powerful statement. He says, do not let your hearts be troubled. Trust in God. Trust also in me. And the first command there relies on the second one. If we, if we truly believe that God is all-powerful and all-wise and all-good, then we can know that he is only going to allow those things that benefit his children. Romans 8, 28. God's plan was to produce something glorious out of the agony that Jesus suffered, and that was our own salvation. And Peter, likewise, apparently understood the worst thing that could happen. Right? The worst thing was that he could be killed after possibly being tortured first, but those things were temporary, and he knew his salvation had already been purchased by the blood of Christ. It was a done deal. 
And he knew that. So he slept, trusting in the Lord. And behold, an angel of the Lord stood next to him, and a light shone in the cell. Now remember, there, there weren't light switches you know, on the wall. People would have to, to bring torches down for light. And in the dungeon, in the middle of the night, it's going to be very dark. But Peter was sleeping so peacefully that the light didn't even wake him up. And so the angel actually had to get physical. <laughs> oh, it, says, it says he struck Peter in the side. I mean, I see him like, hey, <laughs> you know, He's, he struck Peter in the side. It's like, get up, get up quickly. And he woke him up and the chains fell off Peter's hands. And the angel said to him, dress yourself and put on your sandals. And he did so, right? And he said to him, wrap your cloak around you and follow me. So he went out and followed him. Friends, if the Lord reveals his will in a clear fashion like this, what should we do? We should follow where the Lord leads. Amen. We should follow when and where God leads. Now, I know it's, it's pretty rare that God's will is so apparent, right? I mean, when an angel literally kicks you awake and then gives you verbal instructions, it's probably pretty easy to know that you're supposed to go with them. But most of us don't experience things so cut and dried when it comes to receiving God's will, right? That's not as, it's usually not quite as black and white. And a lot of times, we only figure out what direction God wants us to go when he drops it in our laps. You know, sometimes we rely on the whole door being opened thing, you know, so to speak. Friends, it's true. Circumstances are one of the ways that God communicates with his people, but I, I don't think that's the most reliable way. Um, what, what's the most reliable way for us to hear from the Lord? It's through his word. Scripture, as interpreted by the Holy Spirit that lives in us. Isn't it? I mean, if, if we're being honest, we have to say that. You, you could argue that if, if we could perfectly hear the Holy Spirit, then that would be uh, at, at least as reliable. But the, the fact is, a lot of times we don't really know if it's the Holy Spirit, do we? Sometimes we, we, we struggle with that. And we, we ask ourselves, is this God, is this really you, you, know, you speaking to me? So I guess we're not asking ourselves, we're asking God, is this really you speaking to me? It's through God's word being interpreted by the Holy Spirit that he speaks to us most clearly. But I'm saying that to preface this. Don't make the mistake of assuming that you are called to go through every door that's opened. Sometimes God opens doors and he doesn't want us to walk through them. And I, and I do believe, and I've experienced occasions where it appears that God has opened the door, you know, sometimes more than one, and I, I've had to pray and I've had to use discernment and see if it's really the Lord's will to walk through this particular door instead of a test. And if there are various options, then we should ask him about which one to take. You know, uh, Henry Blackaby points out that besides circumstances, God uses three other things to guide us. The Holy Scriptures, the Holy Spirit, and the Holy Saints, meaning other mature Christians. And, and bear in mind that, um, <coughs> excuse me, <coughs> sorry, that God's Holy Spirit in us will never say anything to us that is in direct contradiction to the word. Okay? That's very, very important for you to know. Okay? God has revealed his will very clearly in his word. The Holy Spirit is not going to contradict his word. So um, let me just explain this. Really, I had a conversation with someone this last Thursday uh, about the authority of Scripture. And they said this, and I copied and pasted it, okay? They said, Mark, it was the Holy Spirit that led me out of Christianity and away from the ideas that we need to be punished for our sins. It has been revealed to me that we are all innocent and deserve love no matter what we believe. 
at the point in time when I was struggling with the concepts of hell, God said to me, it doesn't matter what you believe, I would never do something like that. The Bible and the stories in it are man-made. I used to pray and seek the Lord continually, and I'm pretty confident that the Holy Spirit led me out. I still have a relationship with God, but they, they, are a God of love, not wrath. I hope you can find the true God and not the God of religion that has been taught to you. Friends, this is both sad and horrifying. This is 100% a lie from Satan that is bolstered by this world that we live in. And, and, and it says that we should follow our feelings instead of the word of God that he has revealed to us. And the word is it's revealed through the body of Christ. Follow your heart is a lie. It's a lie. All right, let's get back to Peter. Um, these next three slides, there, there's no fill in the blanks. So you can just sit back and listen for a couple minutes if you want to. Uh, in the meantime, though, count with me how many times people respond weirdly to what's going on, okay? There, it, it, it's kind of funny as you read through this. If you don't know the story, hopefully you'll, you'll go, wow, that really doesn't make sense. Just like... I feel like, so anyway, Peter did not know that what was being done by the angel was real, but he thought he was seeing a vision. One, <laughs> when they had passed the first and the second guard, they came to the iron gate leading into the city. It opened for them of its own accord, and they went out, and they went along one street, and immediately the angel left him. When Peter came to himself, he said, now I am sure that the Lord has sent his angel and rescued me from the hand of Herod and from all that the Jewish people were expecting. When he realized this, he went to the house of Mary, the mother of John, whose other name was Mark, where many were gathered together and were praying. Somehow I managed to gloss over that when I was reading this. That's the mother of Mark, of John Mark. Interesting. Anyway, I don't know how I missed that. And when he knocked at the door of the gateway, a servant girl named Rhoda came to answer. Now, it doesn't say a servant woman. She was probably fairly young. Recognizing Peter's voice, in her joy, she did not open the gate two, <laughs> but ran in and reported that Peter was standing at the gate. They said to her, you are out of your mind, three, <laughs> but she kept insisting that it was so, and they kept saying, it is his angel, four. <laughs> that doesn't make sense. Okay, I mean, I understand Peter, I can understand Peter thinking this wasn't actually happening because, I mean, maybe he didn't, you know, he didn't think to pinch himself or whatever. But And Rhoda being so shocked that she didn't answer the door, I mean, I can totally see that happening with a child, right? It happens at my house. People will literally, like, they'll knock on the door or some of my kids will come to the door and be like, oh, and then just, like, run away from the door. It's usually that one. Anyway, so, um, but it, it's just, it, you know, I can, I, can, I can understand that. But the church, the church was literally praying fervently right then, for the very answer that God had given them a resounding yes to. And instead of believing it, you know, they, they called a little, a little girl, this poor little girl, they called her crazy. And then they made up a nonsense explanation. It might have been an angel. This bizarre explanation for what's happening. Look, they didn't really expect God to do anything. <laughs> really? I mean, I, I'm, I read this and I'm like, Really? The very thing that you're praying for is happening right there in front of you, and you're not even seeing it. I mean, aren't we just like that sometimes? It's easy enough when I read the story to go, they're such morons, but I do the same thing. 
We pray and we don't expect God to say yes. Shouldn't, shouldn't we expect God to respond in prayer? Shouldn't we expect him to respond to us when we ask him? I mean, after all, how many times in Scripture are we, are, are we encouraged and even instructed to pray? It's a whole bunch. <laughs> and how often are we told that God hears and that God answers? Also, a whole bunch. And so why, church, are we so slow to believe it when it happens? I've gotten to the place now where if I'm praying for somebody to be healed and God does it miraculously, which does happen sometimes, I, I, I'm, I'm surprised but not shocked, right? It's like, oh, cool, God, you said yes this time, you know, but it, it doesn't, I don't, I can't believe, because he does these things. He does these things. I hope this is the Holy Spirit and not just caffeine, but I, I want you guys to understand this, this is real. God miraculously heals when we ask him. God miraculously does things that you can't imagine he would actually do because we know how good he is, but we think, oh, but he's not going to give me that. I know I don't deserve it. And he does anyway. God is that good. Anyway, just in this room, I, I promise you, there are multiple testimonies where God has given an amazing response to prayer. And I don't know why we don't always receive it. I think it's, it has to do with our own maturity, maybe, or lack thereof. But, you know, it, it's true, it, especially in the cases of, of when elders anoint and pray over somebody. Again, you know, God doesn't always say yes, but sometimes he does. And there's always benefit from a prayer offered in faith, always. And if you want to do more reading about that, and I recommend you do. Um, please, just, just write this down. Write this down in, your, in your, uh, your notes on the side there. Look up John 14 through 16, okay, when Jesus is talking to his disciples. Uh, it's, it's the amazing discourse, but this dialogue between Jesus and the disciples. It's only in John. I love it. And then also uh, write 1 John 5 and James 5. So that's John 14 through 16, 1 John 5, and James 5. There's a lot in there that talks about the, the efficacy of prayer. Anyway, it's almost funny because even the first century church, with all the stuff they had seen, they had trouble believing that God said yes. But why? I mean, the whole time that they're, they're, they're inside this house, and Rhoda is essentially telling them, hey, guys, our prayers have been answered, and they're accusing her of being crazy. Peter's outside, still wondering if they're going to let him in. But Peter continued knocking, and when they opened, they saw him and were amazed, right? Imagine their joy. It's not just that they're seeing Peter, but knowing, wow, God said yes, but then motioning to them with his hands to be silent. You know, I mean, I, I kind of picture they're probably in the middle of a neighborhood, right? And he just escaped from prison. <laughs> so he's like, shh, you know, don't wake the neighbors. Don't wake. But he described to them how the Lord had brought him out of the prison. And he said, tell these things to, to James and to the brothers. By the way, uh, at this point, he's not referring to James, the brother of John. He's either talking about James the lesser uh, or James, the brother of Jesus. Then he departed and went to another place. And it, it's not the main point of this passage but Peter's behavior can certainly serve as a reminder of something that Jesus said all the way back in Matthew chapter 5. Jesus said, keep asking and you will what? Receive. Keep seeking and you will what? 
keep knocking and what? The door will be opened. And as Christians, we should keep asking, seeking, and knocking. In Peter's case, it was, it was literal, you know. He, he had to keep banging on the door until he finally opened it. In our case, it has to do with our attitude toward God. Are we really putting effort into our Christian life, into our Christian walk? I mean, are, are we pursuing God and His will at all, or, or are we always expecting Him to make the overtures? You know, He's, he's got to come to me, you know, that type, that type attitude. It, it is, it is our, our duty and our privilege and our honor to, to work, to be able to deepen our relationship with the Lord. And by work, I mean working in prayer, wrestling with Him, reading His Word, getting into the, the, the tough stuff. And the more that we do this, the more that we work to deepen this relationship with God, the more he rewards us with greater faith. And the more we get to see him at work because he opens our eyes and we see what he's doing and it gives him glory. All right, last paragraph. Now when day came, there was no little disturbance among the soldiers over what had become of Peter. I'll bet because they knew what the punishment was for losing a prisoner, okay, Probably a lot of finger pointing going on between the. <laughs> I thought you had him. I thought you had him. You know. uh, and after Herod searched for him and did not find him, he examined the sentries and ordered that they should be put to death. And as weird as this sounds, I feel kind of sorry for him. <laughs> I mean, yeah, they're Roman soldiers, but like this, this wasn't their fault. They were doing their job. You know, not, no, I'm not saying that in you know the, nothing that they. You know what I'm saying, right? Okay. <laughs> I'm not saying this is a job and so everything was good. I'm just saying, you know, Peter escaped and God did it. Anyway, they went down from Judea to Caesarea, Herod did, and spent some time there. We're going to talk about what happened in Caesarea um, next week. But, but I think that Peter's departing and going to another place at the end of the last paragraph fits into this one pretty well. Because, I mean, yeah, he'd been released from prison by God. But if he hadn't gone somewhere else, what would have happened? Right, you better believe that would have put him right back in prison. You know, and, and Herod wasn't going to go, well, you know, Peter got out of prison, so I guess I'm in the wrong. I better repent. No, that's not what he did. He went right on with his, his bloodthirsty, tyrannical way while Peter got out of Dodge. And I, I think it's important that we recognize that, that even, even though we may be spared in certain situations, we should not expect things to look up in this world. We shouldn't expect that. That's not typically how it works. You know, in, in science, and by that I'm, I'm talking about real science, okay, <laughs> the second law of thermodynamics states that all things tend toward entropy, which, by the way, is why macroevolution doesn't work. But anyway, that's because the Lord created a perfect universe, and when man sinned, it began to immediately break down. It began to tend toward entropy. It began to unravel. Just like Herod... The U.S. government is not likely to suddenly become more pro-Christianity. But if, if God allows that, then, then cool, you know. But that doesn't mean that America is going to continue that trend indefinitely. And that's not where our hope should be anyway, right? You know, all earthly empires eventually end. You know that, right? Right? The Ottoman Empire, the Roman Empire, the Greek, I mean, they, they all end eventually. And it's the same thing with individuals just on a smaller scale. I mean, just because God may heal me from a disease today, that, that even miraculously, that doesn't mean that I'm not going to die eventually. You know, we're all going to die. 
if Jesus comes back tomorrow or in five minutes, the, the, the word says the, the corruptible cannot inherit the incorruptible. That means our bodies will die. But you're not your body. If you're in Christ, your spirit is alive with Christ. And it's just going to be an awesome transition from this broken down shell to something great. But being spared pain and suffering and grief today is simply putting off the inevitable. We should not expect, listen, we should not expect things to continually look up in this world, but we can look up. We can look up. The Lord is the everlasting God. He is our hope. He is the anchor. The hope that we have in him is an anchor for the soul. You know, at the end of his life, after enduring awful torture, Peter was crucified upside down. And that was after he had to watch them lead away his wife to be crucified. But do you know the last thing that tradition records he spoke to his wife? It was two words. Remember Christ. Remember Christ. God's Son. The crucified and risen Savior who sits at the right hand of the Father interceding for those who believe in Him. Look up. That's, that's what we can do in this life. You know, no matter what challenges we face. And how do we do that? Um, to find out, we're going to revisit a passage from earlier, but we're going to read just a little further, okay? As Paul said to Timothy, Indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted, while evil people and imposters will go from bad to worse, deceiving and being deceived. But as for you, he says, continue in what you have learned and have firmly believed. That's how we look up. We continue in what we have learned and firmly believed. That, that's how we keep Jesus fixed in our sights, by continuing in the faith. And guess what? That's how we continue in the faith, by keeping Jesus fixed in our sights. It's another one of those beautiful, cyclical things. That is how we do this. And not just by learning, by believing a set of facts, it's by living them. Continue, friends. Continue, family, in what you have learned and what you fully believed. That's really all I've got. Um, and I hope that it sticks with us. I hope that we can understand it. We are going to go through stuff in this life. Some of it will be as a result of our faith. Much of it will not. It will just be part of the human experience. It will be difficult. But how we handle it, how we deal with it, is going to depend on whether we look up. If you're here this morning and you don't know Jesus Christ, you've not embraced him as your Lord and Savior, you've not made the great confession of faith, you've not been baptized, you've not uh, begun walking in obedience, I challenge you this morning, do those things. Begin it here. Start now. 
And as I look around the room, I know most of us have already done these things, but I want to ask that you sincerely, sincerely walk with Jesus. And pray for your pastor that I will too. Let's bow. Father God, I thank you for today. I thank you for the chance to be here together with brothers and sisters in Christ. And Father, I hope uh, there's a lot of things that came out that weren't in the, in the manuscript, and I hope that they weren't a distraction. I hope that the people were able to... I just don't want to get in your way, Lord. I hope that people were able to, uh, to receive what you had for them. And I thank you, God, that, that your word says no one can thwart your will. And I pray, Father, that, that everyone that is here is able to take something with them when they go. And I, and I ask, Father, that as we live through our week that we just get prepared for what's to come, that we get ready to suffer for you in some way. And I ask that each person here will have the sincere faith to be able to do so when that time comes. Help us to trust in you and to lift each other up. And Lord, while we're still here, while it's still, um, while it's still perfectly legal to do what we're doing, and, and uh, God, while there's not you know, mobs going from church to church, help us to... Uh, Help us to grow in our faith so that uh, we're able to be able to stand firm if the time does come where we need to, uh, to be able to stand firmer. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.